morning, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm your host, Daniel Pink, broadcasting from our state-of-the-art facility here in my garage in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being one of the several hundred listening live right now or the many thousands who have been listening to this recording on iTunes. We human beings revere honesty. You see that everywhere, from the courtroom. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. To the Bible, the Eighth Commandment says, Thou shalt not steal. The Ninth Commandment says, Thou shalt not bear false witness. But today's guest says, Our reverence for the truth is sprinkled with a few flakes of hypocrisy and topped with a few dollops of self-delusion. Dan Ariely is one of the leading social scientists of his generation. He's the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University, and he's a founding member of the Center for Advanced Hindsight. He's also proved absolutely masterful at translating what happens in the lab to people who are outside the lab in a popular audience. His first two books, Predictably Irrational and The Upside of Irrationality were both New York Times bestsellers. And now he's out with his third book, a really fascinating work that has been a nonstop source of conversation here in the Pink family. It's called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. Dan Ariely, welcome to Office Hours. Oh, my pleasure. Nice to be here. Uh, where are you right now? I'm in my office in Durham, North Carolina. Oh, wow. Okay. So we've seen, I've seen videos of you in your office in Durham, North Carolina at Duke University. Well, let me explain to you and to our audience how Office Hours works. On each program, we open the phone lines for an hour, and our guests and I will take your questions, questions about work, business, life, careers, education, anything you want. If you have questions, we have answers. And when we don't, we'll just make them up. As we like to say... <laughs> As we like to say, this program is car talk for the human engine. Now, for those of you listening live, if you want to ask a question, press star 2 on your phone. That's star 2 on your phone if you're listening live and want to ask Dan Ariely a question. Star 2 on your phone. That will allow our crack team of producers to see you on the control panel. I'll say your name, something like Josephine in St. Louis. You're on the air and you can ask away. We've also found that people absolutely love asking questions via Twitter. Uh, so if you want to do that, just include my Twitter handle, which is at Daniel Pink, at Daniel Pink. Now, again, just to get this out of the way, if you're listening to this on iTunes, you can't ask a question. You can press star two on your phone, but nothing will happen. So don't do that. Uh, but first, I get to ask Dan some Dan some questions. So let me begin with this. Um, uh, so for the benefit of those listening on iTunes, let me set the scene here. Uh, we are talking here at the end of the week. It's Friday, Friday afternoon, in fact. By my watch, it's 1.05 p.m. My question for you, Dan Ariely. So far today, how many times have you cheated or lied? So far from the beginning of my existence? No, from the beginning of the day. How many times oh, today? From the beginning of the day. Yeah. Uh, by the way, this is a great question. Uh, <laughs> a lot of times. Um, but, but I should say that most of my lies up to now have been the exact lies that my parents told me to, to tell. Uh, 
they mostly come from questions like, honey, how do I look in that dress? Ah. Uh, where we basically trade off um, different different human values. You know, it's it's kind of interesting that you started with the biblical uh, question, you know, thou shalt not lie. Uh, it, it turns out that there's lots of human values. Honesty is one of them, and they're not all compatible. And many times when people, you face different situations, all of a sudden you have to trade off different values. And we actually don't tell our kids to trade off these values in in uh, and holding the truth all the time. Uh, so, what are, what, are the, what are the values we're trading off when we are when we're trading honesty for something else? But let's think of it as an exchange. If, we're, if it's a trade-off, I'm trading away honesty in order to get what? So let's let's think first of all about the social realm, which we all are willing to admit more freely that we're being dishonest. Uh, so, for example, uh, it's about your uh, your friend, your friendship. Right? If I tell you exactly the truth, you might be offended. But if I say something like, oh, this is a really thoughtful question, uh, all of a sudden, even if I don't think it is, uh, all of a sudden I'm improving our friendship. And right. What about if you smell or you don't look that good? Um, <laughs> what about if I can um, help you out a little bit in the business deal, where all of a sudden I can uh, pay a little bit more and you as my friend would get something, something extra? So we face we face these trade-offs all the time in the personal domain, and we all have to admit that in the personal domain, white lies are very important. Now, mm-hmm. and by the way, you probably don't want somebody who's perfectly honest in their in their personal life. But now imagine that one of those things that you're trading off is not the benefit of another person and how your friendship is, but instead it's how much money you would make, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Or how much money your company would make, or how right. wealthy your kids would be. All of a sudden, the same trade-offs come as well, and we have these very large gray zones. Now, what we generally find in the research is that people would not tell extreme lies. If if your mm-hmm. wife comes to you and says, honey, how do I look in that dress, and she looks absolutely awful, I don't think you would say you look fantastic. You would probably say something like, you know, maybe it's time to look for something else. But if it's something that is kind of, she's okay but not great, you will probably, you will probably lie. We have this ability to fudge things a little bit with, because of these trade-offs and still feel good about ourselves. You know, when you ask people how, how many people have lied today or the last week or the last month, everybody realizes they've done that. When you ask people, do you think of yourself as honest, wonderful people, everybody says, yes, of course I'm an honest, wonderful person. Absolutely. And it's exactly because we're able to lie but it doesn't reflect back on our understanding of our own honesty. But this is just to me, as I, as I read this book, we're talking to Dan uh, Ariely. Uh, his book is The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. To me, the, the, the cent- one of the, I guess the central finding here is that, which I think is a little bit counterintuitive, is that at least the, if people don't know the research, is that most of us do lie and cheat, but only a little. Why is that? Yeah. And, you know, this is kind of the good news, bad news. Uh-huh. So the, the economic model of dishonesty is all about cost-benefit analysis. Right. It says that when you think about cheating, you think to yourself, what do I stand to gain? What do I stand to lose? Um, and there's no space for morality in it. There's no internal moral compass that stops you from behaving badly. And if you think about it, you know, you probably have lots of chances to steal things throughout the week. Sure. Right? You, you get invited to friends and you see other people's offices and there's all kinds of things that happen when they actually give you a chance to be dishonest and never, never be caught. 
Nevertheless, we don't take most of those opportunities. That's the good side. The good side is that something is holding us back from acting in our own self, self-interest. And that's kind of the good news. The bad news is that we don't have to be 100% good to feel that we're good. And right. the key there ends up being rationalization. And imagine that rationalization is like a machine or like a balloon. Everything that would get rationalization to be higher would make it easier for you to be dishonest and don't think of yourself as being honest. And Mm -hmm. anything that would make this rationalization machine be lower would make it harder for you to rationalize your actions away. So um, let me ask you, do you have any illegally downloaded music on your computer? I don't think I do. Okay. and, and you, you are, I, I know you're uh, not in your late teens. If you ask right. people in their late teens about this, yeah. uh, they virtually all of them have it. And not uh, only that, they don't feel bad about it. But what do they say? Do they say, I do, but only a few songs? Or I don't? I mean, tell me what, suppose, suppose that, oh, let, let, let's reverse roles here. You're, a, you're a, a typical 19-year-old, and I say to you, typical 19-year-old, do you have any downloaded songs on your computer? What do you say? I say I say yes. I have I have lots of them, and and you ask me is this something bad to do, and I say absolutely not. I, uh, I say I say you know what the musicians really want the music to be heard, okay. and I'm actually I... helping them out. And record label companies, those are companies of all time. These are kind of uh, you know they're just making money hands over fist. They're evil. They don't deserve any of my money. And besides, everybody else does it. And you right. know what? I wouldn't have bought this music anyway, so nobody's really suffering. I see. Okay, so, so that's but, a lot. That's, that's, that's like five rational, four rationalizations right there. No yeah, one not is, to no mention the distance. Yeah, no, one else, no one is harmed. Uh, everyone else is doing it. Um, uh, the companies can afford it, and the people who I'm nominally stealing from endorse it. I mean, that's yeah. based on, on, on what you're saying about what you're saying. That's four rationalizations right there, which is actually a pretty sophisticated <laughs> That's right. And this is, by the way, I'm just repeating something that I've heard over and over yeah, from, yeah. Uh, from young people. And once you get to this full level of rationalization and you don't see who you're stealing from, now people are just like the economic agent, right? Because when you talk to undergrads about this, mm. it's only about being caught and penalties. There's nothing that is holding them back. At the same time, uh, every time I've gone to a restaurant in the last few years, I always ask the waiter, if they are, what does he think is the best way to get out of this restaurant without payment? By the way, you can imagine how this discussion goes. Yeah, yeah. But I started the discussion. I said, look, if I wanted not to pay today and just run away, what would you recommend that I do? And okay. they usually give me very, very good advice. And they say, you know, there's a door behind the kitchen, or you could do this, <laughs> or you could see when I'm not around. And uh-huh. you know what? I think in 100% of the cases, you could get out of a restaurant without being paid if you wanted to do it. Right. And then you ask them, and how often do people do that? Very, yeah. very rarely. Uh-huh. And they said that when it happened, it's usually people who truly forgot about paying, and they uh-huh. just walk out slowly out, and they catch them, and they really apologize, and, and they pay for it. Now, if you think about those things, nobody rationalizes stealing from a restaurant because right. it's really hard. You sit right. there, and somebody is serving you, and you know that it costs them money, and you know um, that somebody has paid attention and time and effort into it, so it's impossible to, to cheat. And even though you can get away with it, it's your internal moral compass that is stopping you. 
And what is interesting mm. about all of this research is what gets our internal moral compass to activate to a higher degree and to a lower degree, and to, to realize that it's that that is causing higher and lower cheating, and it's not about crime and punishment and being caught and going to prison. Right. Right. You know, is so, so another I, thing I. Sorry, well, I, I, mean, I I just want to let me let me connect this. Let me connect this because I know a lot of our listeners have read your, your your previous books, and and this is just you know another example of, of when you say that it's not a cost benefit analysis. That in some cases it is we can call it irrational, or to 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 use your term, it's predictably irrational. It's a, it's another time where the typical model of that explains away illegal behavior, the model that I think was birthed by Gary Becker. Uh, ends yep. up actually not having a lot of explanatory power because human beings end up being slightly more uh, peculiar um, yep. at some level, both, um, but 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 end up being peculiar in a somewhat predictable way. Um, so let's let's go let's go to this idea because I think it's really quite fascinating. And and when I look at my own behavior, I, I start thinking about okay, what are the instances where I have cheated a little or cut corners or told a white lie and. When you actually start scrutinizing your own behavior, you realize that they actually do pile up. But let's take a step back here and talk about the experiments themselves, um, because you do just a really terrific job of explaining these really clearly. But it seems that one of your one of your key techniques in, in your experiments, and I want you to explain this to our listeners here, in some ways, it's your white laboratory rat is the is the matrix test. Um, why don't you explain what that is, how you use it, and then how that has yielded some really interesting findings. Yeah. So the first thing we want to do is we want to create a, a situation in which we can actually measure this honesty uh, accurately. So what we did was we created a sheet of paper with 20 simple math problems. These are problems that everybody could solve if they had enough time, but we don't give people enough time. So imagine you're in the experiment. I give you this sheet of paper. I said you have five minutes. Solve as many of those as you can. I'll give you a dollar per question. And then I say, go. You start working as fast as you can. At the end of the five minutes, I say, stop, put your pencil down, and count how many questions you got correctly. Okay. And once you finish counting them, I say, please take the sheet of paper, go to the back of the room and shred it. And then come to the front of the room, tell me how many questions you got correctly, and I will pay you accordingly. So it's basically up to people to report how many they got, they got correctly. People do and, this. And give us a, give us a sense. In, in, in some of these experiments, the, the, the payment per correct answer is, is what fifty cents a dollar, relatively 50 modest. Fifty cents amount. a dollar, up to up to ten dollars. We we've done yeah. that. Yeah. And, okay. and people basically say they solve on average six, and we pay them six dollars. And then in the what the people don't know is that the shredder has been fixed, so it shreds <laughs> the center of the uh, the sides of the page, but the center of the page remains intact. And we can jump into the recycling bin, and we can find out how many questions people really solve correctly. And what do we find? That the most common mode is to solve four problems and reporting six. Now, we okay, have a so few let's, cheaters. Let's, 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 just, let's just bring that again to the surface here. So basically what you're saying is, is that most people in these kinds of conditions will solve four problems correctly, but when they think that their test paper is shredded, they will report that they have solved Six questions. That's six, right. Six problems correctly. So they are lying. They are lying by two questions, or by you know two questions, or or, or fifty or or fifty percent. Now, yep. And that's and this seems to be fairly consistent over 
across cultures, across ages? Across culture, across age, across experiments. You know, in, in the in the book in general, I describe experiments that we ran on about 30,000 people. Many, many experiments. None of them is yeah, that big. Yeah. But, and from these 30,000 people, we had about 12 big cheaters. And these uh-huh. cheaters have stole about $150 from me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and from these 30,000 people, we had about 18,000 little cheaters that stole about $36,000. From me. Wow. And I okay. Think this so, is, so you had so you had eighteen big cheaters, and you had what eighteen thousand little cheaters? Yeah, about twelve That's, big cheaters and eighteen thousand little cheaters. And, and, okay. And then and how and, and and how many? What does that mean that for people who were perfect, people who were honest, people who said I got three rights, so pay me for three? Yeah, that's that's very interesting. So in every experiment, we get some people who don't cheat. Uh-huh. And what we haven't been able to do is to find out whether it's the same people across experiments. So one of our limitations of our studies is that we try to keep perfect anonymity, and because yeah. of that, we don't know if it's the same people. So, you know, we find that lots of things let, – let's go back now. So so this is the basic measurement of cheating. And now we can say, how does the economic incentive change it? How does the ability to rationalize change it? And, and we find lots of interesting things. We find that the things that you think would matter – like the probability of being caught or amount of money that you stand to gain don't really matter much. And what matters is all the things that would influence rationalization. So if you stop okay. and you say to yourself, what kind of things would allow me to rationalize to a higher degree? All of those things basically get people to cheat more. And if you ask mm. yourself, what would make it harder for me to rationalize? All of those things get us to cheat to a lower degree. So rationalization is really the engine that is yeah. allowing this kind of misbehavior. Yes, yes. Um, okay, so, um, but again, the cheating isn't, I mean, I guess we can call going, uh, getting four right and reporting six a small cheat. I guess I guess we yep. can call it that. Um, uh, and yet people, I think what's interesting about this is that people don't think of themselves as dishonest doing that. I guess because their rationalization engines are working pretty efficiently. Yeah, and the way to think about it is that if you, st- if you cheat in a big way, you couldn't rationalize it. But right. if you cheat in a small way, it's easy to rationalize it. So it's one of the things I liked a lot was the, a study on golf. And it, it's kind of illustrative, I think, to the idea. So imagine yeah, you play chapter, golf. There's a whole chapter on golf in this book, for those of you yep. golf fans who are listening. Uh, <laughs> and the book, again, Dan, give me one second. Uh, the book we we're talking about here is, uh, is uh, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty by, by Dan Ariely, and if uh, we got a few people queued up with questions, but it's not your turn yet. It's still my turn. If you have a question, you're listening live, press star two on your phone uh, to ask Dan a question. Uh, and we also have a few questions coming in via Twitter. If you want to ask a question via Twitter, go to at Daniel Pink. Now back to golf with Dan Ariely. So, so the golf thing is, is kind of an interesting example. So imagine you play golf and you want to move your ball by four inches from the rough mm-hmm. to the smooth part. And you could do it in three ways. You can pick up a golf ball and move it. And when right. we ask 12,000 golf players about that, they think this is just awful. It's immoral. It, it offends them. Yeah. They can't believe anybody would do it. They definitely have never done that. No. Then we say, by the way, kicking the ball a little bit. They say, oh, that's, that's much more <laughs> reasonable. Okay. Uh-huh. And what about hitting with the club? That's even more reasonable. And, you know, I'm kind of imagining that, you know, if you don't look at the ball, you just kind of kick it a little bit. It helps you figure out it's not really you. And... To the extent that uh, we don't think that what we're doing is deliberative, yeah. it yeah. becomes much, much easier. 
That's I mean, that's, I thought that was very interesting. Although one, my one of the things that I found interesting in that in that chapter was, and I'm trying to find it here in the book, and I'm I'm successful, was a story about uh, uh, about uh, Bobby uh, Bobby Jones, um, the great yes. golfer from the 1920s or something like that, who had a much more absolutist view of this. Yeah, and and I think there is a this is a very uh, also a very important question. It is, what is our social norm? about yeah. what is acceptable and not acceptable. So we all know the rules, right? I mean, all the people in Greece know that theoretically they're supposed to pay taxes. Uh-huh. Right? <laughs> all the people on Wall Street know that theoretically insider trading is not a good idea. Yeah. Everybody knows that theoretically you're supposed to pay your taxes on time and drive yeah. in the speed limit and so on. Well, but it's not only theoretically. There are laws. I mean, but the laws, But the laws are about long-term consequences, and it's about being caught. You know, there's a very sad analysis of what is the effect of the death penalty on crime. Yeah. And the reality, it's an unobservable effect. You can't, you, states that have the death penalty don't have a reduced crime. Right. Now, if the death penalty doesn't have reduced crime, what does it tell you about people's thinking about the long-term future and the ramification of their, of their activity? I recently talked to some people who have done insider trading. Yeah. Uh, and they basically said, one of them said that, he, he has been in, doing inside trading for 17 years. He said he hasn't met a single broker who hasn't been doing inside trading. Wow. And he said that his tips were always worse than other people, right? <laughs> and he, in his mind, he thought that he was not doing anything bad because his tips were just so yeah. less precise and so yeah. less clear than other, what other people are getting. We do know what the laws are in principle, but what really shape our daily decision is what we see around us and what we find is what's called social proof, is a sure. reshaped understanding of what is acceptable and not acceptable by our immediate environment and our circles of friends. And so it's, 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 if uh, it is this, this explains why people feel absolutely no moral compunction to go 65 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour highway when everybody else is going 65. In fact, yep. I think most people would be outraged if a police car came up to them and said, I'm sorry, you're going 10 miles over the speed limit. Yeah, um, and, and we know it's not okay, but at the same time, everybody else is doing it. And I think the same thing is true about Greece. I recently talked to somebody from Greece who was about to sell her house. Yeah. And, you know, there was a question of whether she sells it legally and pay taxes or not. And she basically said, but, but nobody else is doing this. Why should I? And when I bought the house, I didn't buy, buy it. Uh, legally, so why should I suffer? Why should I suffer now? So very much a, a shaped understanding of what is okay or not okay, separately from what is officially legal and not legal. Right, and that seems to be a very that aspect of social proof seems to be a very uh, pow- very efficient, powerful fuel for these rationalization engines. It's, um, it's very it's very powerful, and it's actually incredibly dangerous because once okay, you talk- go down that road, yeah, it's incredibly hard to stop. Uh-huh. Well, there, is, so if, there are some other interesting things here. Let, let, me, let me just pick up on that for a moment, and we're going to give our, our listeners time for some questions here, too. There is a kind of, um, there's a, kind of uh, a, a cascading effect here, or, or you call it an, basically an infection. That is, if everyone around us is cheating, that then we're going to cheat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the way we tested it was very simple. We got people in the room with the same experiment I told you about, and all of a sudden, we hired an acting student. The 30 seconds into the experiment, cheated. 30 seconds into the experiment, they said, I solved everything 
what do I do now? And the experiment said, you know, if you solved everything, you're free to go. And this mm -hmm. person took all the money and went home. Now, what happened to other people's morality? Uh -huh. Lots of other people started cheating. But yeah. there's two interpretations for this. The yeah. first interpretation is that now you prove to people that you can cheat and get away with it, that it's actually quite simple to do. The second interpretation is it's not about um, kind of it's, you can just get away with it. It's about that it's socially acceptable. Ah. So to test this, what we did was we changed the outfit of the student. In the first experiment, it was run at Carnegie Mellon. Everybody was a Carnegie Mellon student. Everybody right. had a Carnegie Mellon outfit. So, so in that condition, when somebody steals, they both give you the signal that it's okay to do and also that it's possible to do. In the second because experiment... It's, but it's also because it's, 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 it's validated because it's someone essentially in your tribe, in your social group that's doing this. Exactly. Somebody like okay. you. And in the second version, they were wearing University of Pittsburgh sweatshirts. Now, the signal, the information about being able to cheat and get away with it is the same. But right. the signal about um, this is being okay in your social group now goes away. Because it's not people from your social group, it's people from this other university that you don't like so much. Right. And what happens now? Cheating actually goes down and goes down dramatically. Interesting. Right? Yeah, so what yeah, it yeah. means is that we do follow the crowd... Yeah. in terms of what we find acceptable, but it's only when it's our kind of crowd, when we actually uh -huh. are connected to it. Right. So, so, the, so, so, so the, social, the social proof in some ways is our, like my tribe's social proof or my yes. team's social proof. Um, that's, um, and, so, and so the things that can wear on, the things that can sort of wear, I guess, wear away our defenses are people in our group doing it. Um, uh, but also what I thought was interesting was the, I'm, I'm switching gears just a little bit here, is the, is the passage of time. That is, uh, we actually tell more lies, do more dishonest things at different times of the day. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so that's, that's very interesting, and it connects to a general finding of something called depletion. Uh, and depletion uh, is the basic idea that, Life is full of temptations, and as we resist temptation, we get slightly weaker. It's harder and harder to resist this temptation. So there's, there are donuts, and there are muffins, and there's uh, Facebook, and there's YouTube, and oh, there's yeah. uh, all kinds of emails. And every time you resist temptation, it's as if you're lifting a weight, if you kind of, and it wears on our ability to resist mm -hmm. temptation. Yep. And then at some point, we get so tired that we can just break. And that's actually what we find. We find that as we deplete people, we get their uh, thinking capacity to be slightly more tired and their temptation, uh, ability to resist temptation lower, all of a sudden they cheat to a higher degree. And that happens, and, and, and in terms of the, the timing, that happens later in the day. When you've gone through the whole day resisting Facebook, resisting the muffins, resisting the pepperoni pizza, you get to a point where you say, I'm, I'm, I'm spent. I can't that, resist that, any that's longer. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and the more we try to restrain people, the 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 tougher the tougher it is for them later on to do that. Because mm -hmm. this idea to, to fight your own uh, impulses is actually very tough. It's very tough to fight our impulses sure. and it it's not something we could do for a long time. Right, right. But there are we're going to get to this in a moment. I want to take some calls uh uh Dan uh Arielli 
Ari Elliott here. Um, remember, if you're out there listening, it's star two to ask a question. We have some people lined up. I want to talk um, in, a, in a moment about what we – we're not completely powerless in no. shaping an environment so that people can control their impulse or behave more honorably. But we'll get to that in a moment. Let's take a um, – let's go to the phone to uh, Evansville, Indiana. Evansville, Indiana, you're on the air with, with uh, Dan Ariely. Evansville, are you there? I am. How are you? Good. Who is this? This is Debbie. What your first name? Debbie. Debbie. Hi, Debbie. What's your question for, for the other Dan? Well, my question to Dan A. is, what is the real root cause of this? What caused us to go so far to the other side? Because, in my opinion, we now value and we actually um, love it when somebody can pull the wool over our eyes and so when somebody can, and so to speak, lie and get away with it. We have now said it's not only acceptable, but, hey, sell us on it. Yeah. What so, makes you, so what, what, let Debbie, me. What makes you? Let me just pop in here for a second. What makes you think that, Debbie? What? You, well, I mean, what? Do you have an experience that's that where you you've seen I, that happen? I think happen? that as we watch um, people on television, and um, whether it be media or politics or anything like that, it's like, hey, you know, we we celebrate it. It's more than just comedy anymore. I mean, you know. Oh, I remember years I ago. We, 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 admire, then, we admire, the, we admire that glib talk. Yeah. It's yeah. that glibness, and we say, hey, look what he got away with. Look at that. And and we've now gotten to the point where or all of us hear things, and we say, well, that isn't really true, but it's acceptable. And it's being okay. put yeah. out there. So thanks, what's the thanks, root Debbie. cause? Let's see what, let's, let's see what Professor Thank you. Uh, about this. Great question. So let me, let me give you two answers for what I think might contribute to this trend. And the first one is a distance from money. So in mm. one of our experiments, people did the same thing I described earlier. They shred a piece of paper, they come to the experimenter, and they say, Mr. Experimenter, I solved X, I solved X amount of problems, give me X amount of dollars. In the second version of the experiment, they said, I solved X amount of problems, give me X tokens. And we pay them in pieces of plastic. They took these pieces of plastic, they walked 12 feet to the side, and changed it for a dollar. So, in fact, when people were looking into somebody's eyes, they were lying for something that was multiple, one step removed from money, and what happened, we got our participant to double their cheating. Mm. And I think that if you think about it, in society, we're moving toward things that are many, many steps removed from money. Electronic wallets, credit cards, stock options, mortgage-backed securities, and so on. And these extra steps allow us to not see the consequences of our action in an unescapable way. So when you talk about the moral deterioration, I don't think that, for example, robbery is looked at more positively now than it used to be. I don't think that when you hurt somebody specifically, all of a sudden people say, yes, that's a good thing to do. You know, 40 years ago we thought it was bad, but right now we think this is actually something that we, we cheer. I don't think that's the case, but I think that we have many more opportunities to create crime that we are so removed, the, the actions are so removed from the consequences that we don't make the link to a higher degree. Somebody is creating an algorithm to shave a few fractions yeah. of a penny from stocks. We yeah. don't see exactly the people who are suffering so we can justify to a higher degree. That's the first thing. The second thing, we did a study in a, in a coffee shop in Boston. We asked people to solve, do some task for five minutes for $5. And when we paid them, we said, here's your $5. Please count it and sign a receipt for $5, but we mm. actually gave them $9. Mm. And what we find is that, you know, the majority of the people return the money. 
But in a second condition, when we explain to them the experiment, we annoy them slightly. And the moment we annoy them slightly, <clears throat> you know, the research assistant pretended to have a phone call. He picked up his phone. He talked to uh, John about pizza tonight. After that, almost nobody returned the money. And basically, the idea is that if somebody has hurt us before, mm -hmm. we can more easily rationalize being yeah. bad to them. Right? So somebody who's now stealing from the banks or stealing from somebody we think or from an insurance company and so on, we can see that happening, right? We could say, oh, yeah, these people are really crooked and evil, and actually uh, this is restoring karma, doing something positive uh -huh. instead. So, uh -huh. so I, think, I think all of those forces are contributing. I don't think <clears> – so, you know, there's a question of whether we have an overall moral deterioration. I think that the moral deterioration that we see around us is due to two things. It's due to increased distance from money – yeah. It's due to increase awareness of how much other people are cheating. And actually mm. three things. And the third thing is that sometimes because there's so much cheating, we feel that cheating back is actually okay. Right. Yeah. And those are I mean those are all those are all very hard problems. <laughs> those are very, very difficult uh, conditions to address. I the, the second point is actually quite interesting is that we're, we're, we're nominally, we're, we're, we're arguably better informed now about anything. We can find out anything that's going on in the world. And so since it's a world of human beings, it's a world that's populated in part by dishonest people, people doing dishonest things. And so we hear, we hear more about them. The other thing which you point out in the book, which I think is quite fascinating, is this idea that uh, we are having a greater distance from, from cash. Um, yep. And we move to cashless transactions and gift cards and electronic blitz and things like that. That might be accelerating it. But there are things we can there are things we can we can do here. And let me I want to go to the phones a little bit more. But but you you found that you can establish a setting, a set of circumstances that where people will behave um, better. Uh, for instance, um, I mentioned at the top of the program the Ten Commandments. Uh, you enlisted the Ten Commandments to what I think was a pretty remarkable effect. Tell us, tell us about that. Yeah. So we, we asked people at UCLA to try and recall the Ten Commandments, and I should point out that none of them could, 500 people, none of them could remember all Ten Commandments, and quite a few of them invented new interesting ones. Oh, really? But That's after, kind of an interesting oh. one, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we have a new project now. And if you were asked to rewrite the Ten Commandments, what would you put there? But I have actually very different... thought, I, yeah, I've actually thought about that. But anyway, go ahead. Um, and what we find that after that, after trying to recall the Ten Commandments, people basically don't lie. And it's not as if the people who remember more commandments, the more religious people don't, and the people who can remember only a few commandments cheat. In fact, even when we take self-declared atheists and we get them to, to swear in the Bible, they stop cheating. So what this tells me is that we do have this internal moral compass. It's only that sometimes it's kind of out for lunch, or it's resting, or it's not really paying attention. But the moment we are more aware of our own uh, internal actions, um, we actually behave much, much better. And this we found also to, to work with uh, the honor code at universities. Yeah, that's uh, we tell found us, it tell with, us about that. Tell us about the um, – uh, this goes to another point. I, I thought that the, the, uh, the research from Princeton – yeah. Um, where, because there are the research from Princeton, which I'll let you get to in a moment, that we have 
um, in an effort to be more moral in certain kinds of organizations, particularly universities, we have you know, ethical training and workshops and what you call, you know, propaganda about, about <laughs> honesty. And at Princeton, I guess people spent, students spent a couple of weeks in this ethical training about, you know, you don't cheat here and this is how you act morally and so forth. And tell us what kind of effect that had on the Princetonian propensity to cheat. Yeah, so so we uh, Princeton has an incredibly strong uh, code of ethics, and you could get expelled for violating it. So the consequences are very uh, strong. Um, and we waited two weeks after fin people finished their moral training, and we tested them with the same method I described earlier. And it turns out that when we don't get them to sign the honor code, but you know it's really a very severe at Princeton, they cheat just like students from other universities, universities that don't have an honor code. And when we get them to uh, sign it, they don't cheat, but so do other students in universities that don't have an honor code. So, so it's the, the good signing. My analysis of that is that it's the signing, it's the, it's the commitment, it's the, it's the, uh, the, the assertion by your, of, your, of yourself at that moment that is creating the morality. That's right, and it's not the long-term. So the sad news is it's very hard to change kind of long-term thinking. The good news is it's really easy to change short-term thinking at the moment when temptation arises. And this, I think, uh, because we have kind of a religious theme, you know, to Ten Commandments and so on, yeah. um, you can also ask yourself, what is the role of religion in terms of getting people to behave better? And based on this research, what I would claim is that it's not about heaven and hell. It's not no. about the reward structure in, you know, right. many, many years from now. But instead, the role of religion is about the small rules of the day-to-day. -day. Mm. And every time we have gray zones, we're likely to go astray. But religion, in many cases, gives us very clear rules of what we should and shouldn't do. And those rules actually help people behave better because it's very clear to them if they're on the right side of the rule or the wrong side of the rule. And there also are, as you write, this is, this, I mean, you write somewhere, somewhere in the book that, that religion has certain mechanisms that can, in some ways, reset our moral sensibilities or at least give us that anchor for the short term with everything from Ramadan to Catholic confession to Yom Kippur to uh, a weekly Sabbath. And yep. those have this, I, I mean, as you say, they, they have this capacity to reset these moral sensibilities. Is there a way to secularize that? Yeah, so, so, so first of all, the, the Catholic confession or the version of the Catholic yeah. confession we have tested is, is really like, it's really incredible. So people start cheating a little bit in the experiments, they start cheating more, the slippery slope, they basically cheat all the time at some point. And then we give them a chance to say what they've done badly and to say sorry. And those two things together reset the next steps. And, you know, that's basically what, what confession is all about. And right. it, it works, right? It's really wonderful that it works. Um, and the, the most common version of a secular version of this has been the Reconciliation Act in South Africa. Right. Where basically right. lots of people have stood up and say, sorry, we've done bad and we're going to start a, a new page. And at least, you know, there hasn't been a kind of an experimental study on this thing, but it seems to have basically transitioned South Africa to yeah. a new stage. And now the Reconciliation Commission is helping other countries in Africa to do the same thing. I think, I think it's incredibly important. You know, I've, the criminals I've talked to, the big cheaters I've talked to, basically the story is all the same. They start with one small step that they can rationalize. Uh -huh. 
Then the uh-huh. next step is easier and easier and easier. But at some point, it gets too much. And at that point, it's over because they can't go back. And yeah. now they commit all kinds of terrible things to try and hide what they have done before. Mm. Right? And, and I think right. this is probably very common. And you could say, what would, have, what would be a version of asking our politician to start a new page, asking our bankers to start a new page? I mean, look, with the financial crisis, should we just get people to say, I'm really sorry, mm. let's start over? If we don't say, we're really sorry, let's start over, why would tomorrow be different than yesterday? What, what are we expecting? Uh, By the way, I think the same thing would work for couples in terms of uh, you know, renewing their vows and stuff like that. Yeah, or it, I guess in instances of betrayal, infidelity, and, and so forth. Um, yeah. And on that, ha- I, I, on that happy note, on infidelity and betrayal, let's go back to the phones here. We've got a lot of people lined up here now, Dan. Uh, let's go to, uh, oh, here we go. I've got to go here. Woonsocket, Rhode Island, which, of course, is the head, uh, home of the headquarters of America's favorite and best retail pharmacy. Well, Woonsocket, you're on the air. Hello? Hi. Hi, you're on the air with Dan, with, with Dan A. Hey, it's Brian. Brian. Hi, Brian. Welcome to Office Hours. What's your question for Dan Ariely? Let's see. I actually had uh, a couple questions. And since you brought up a work company, I'll go with a work question then. Okay. Do you see, do you see any um, a need where people start lying? For, I guess I'd say proactive lies versus reactive lies. So proactive or cheating, proactive cheating versus reactive cheating. And so specifically, someone who is maybe pinned in a corner about being questioned around performance where maybe the results aren't being met and they feel there's an un, you know, undesiring consequence that's going to be associated with that. And as a result, they may be more apt to lie versus the proactive to someone just trying to mislead intentionally. Oh, interesting question, Brian. Okay, uh, Dan, uh, Ariel, yeah. what do you think? So, so I think I think that's a very interesting. In most of our research, I think that at the moment that people are lying, they don't think of themselves as liars. Yeah. Right. So, so it's basically about the ability to say, yeah, hey, yeah, you know, this is maybe not actually true, but in general, I'm telling the truth. It's more true than not true. Uh, I'll ah. give an example. One of the guys who had an office next to me, uh, when he turned 36, uh, his question was, does he change his status in? Um, in, um, in the dating website, Match.com, to indicate that he's <laughs> above, the, <laughs> above 36. Okay. And, you know, he came to talk to me about this, and his conclusion eventually was that he looks young for his age. Mm. So because of that, it will be more irresponsible to write that he's 36, because the truth is he looks much more like 33, so this wow. would actually deceive people. So wow. I, I think that most of the dishonest we get in, in life is this kind of thing. When people say, yeah, 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 this might not be perfectly correct, but in general it is more correct than incorrect and it kind of fulfills some general goal. However, once people get into kind of a, a slippery slope, uh, they might get themselves into a corner and then they might have to do things that they know are, that they can't possibly justify, that they can't possibly rationalize, and they're only doing it because they don't want to be caught or they don't want somebody else to be caught, and they know that they're lying. I think it happens, but I think it's a very small part of the amount of dishonesty that we see out there. And what did you say to your colleague about that when he came for your stage counsel? I, uh, I did not give him uh, you know, a final reason, but I then called Match, and I told him that I think they should uh, switch things and instead of getting them to get people to report how old they are, they should ask people for their birth date. Sure. Right? Because I don't think people would lie. Yeah. 
on the birthday, but lying on which age category you're in seems to be an easier thing. Well, if, if you make them assign what their birthday is and then recite the Ten Commandments ahead of time, maybe you have a, maybe you have a shot. Let's go to our next question here. In uh, another university town uh, like uh, Durham, North Carolina, Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas, you're on the air with Dan Ariely. Austin? Hi, my name is Amy. Um, I was hi, Amy. curious about hi. I was curious about the point you made about people signing um, their commitment and that that made a big difference. I'm curious whether that was right handwriting signature or whether you did any electronic signature and if that made any difference. So, Amy, this is a great question. We actually just talked about this in my research group this morning. Uh, we did everything in handwriting, uh, but I think the I think your intuition, and I share that intuition, is that there are ways to make this signature be less uh, salient to the person. So I think that um, typing it um, will make mm. people le less certain, uh, le less less committed to it. I think checking a box would make people less committed. Um, yeah. We have a study underway now on the honor code at the university, and the version that we are testing that I think would work the best is a version in which we ask each student to think about their version of the honor code. So instead of getting people to just sign or even retype, rewrite the, ten co the, the, the honor code, we ask them to think about what's their version of the honor code. And the idea is that if you ask people to do something very thoughtful, it's really hard for them not to pay attention to it. And the key here is all about getting people to pay attention and think. So anything that would get people to think more is likely to work to a higher degree Anything that gets people to think less is probably get them to care about it to a lower degree. Well, that's kind of interesting because we tend to think of it, we tend to think that rationalization is a form of thinking, but in some ways you're saying it's a form of unthinking. Uh, I mean, I'm, you're not saying that, but it seems like in this case, yeah. rationalization is a form of of of, of unthinking. That is, or it's, it's sort of it's, auto, I guess it's because it's automatic. Yep, it's the ability yeah. to turn to turn a blind eye. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's go to uh, let's go to another question here. We've got uh, Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Doylestown, Pennsylvania. You're on the air with Dan Ariely. Doylestown. Hello, Doylestown. It looks like Doylestown has um, disappeared. Sorry about that. Um, let's uh, let me let me. I want to. There's there are a couple of things in the news that I want to talk to you about, uh, Dan A. And I'm sorry to not take some some questions from listeners here, but there are a couple of things that I really want to get there are like a whole bunch of things I want to get your thoughts on but let's go to um let's go back the fellow from uh from uh Woonsocket Rhode Island um talked about the workplace and let's 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 go back to the workplace for a second and talk about resumes um in May as our listeners might remember Yahoo's uh, CEO a guy named Scott Thompson uh, he was booted for embellishing his resume he said that he graduated from Stonehill College with degrees in accounting and computer science and it turned out that his degree was only in accounting. Now, is that a firing offense, Dan? Um, you know, that's, that's a very, very different, uh, difficult question. Because, you know, personally, if, actually, let me, let me say two things. The first one yeah. is the question of what is the path of this lying? Now, I haven't talked to this guy, but my, yeah, guess, yeah. my guess is that he did not start by putting an extra degree. My guess is that he started by putting a class or some uh, extra uh -huh. thing, and uh, then uh, HR reformatted his um, CV, and his assistant did something else, and 
you know, he kind of probably knew that he didn't get it, but at some point it looked to him like maybe he did get something related. And he did, um, he was in computer science, he visited, I mean, he basically kind of created yeah. a story yeah. over time about yeah. why this is okay. Now, yeah. so that, that's first of all about what I think about the likelihood of the crime, and I think in most cases that I've looked at in resumes, it's like that. Now the question of whether we should fire him. Mm. I think here it's not so much question about whether his crime deserves it or not, but it's a question of how much is the organization putting a stake in the ground by do, by either firing him or not firing him. I see. And, uh -huh. and, and the, you know, um, I'm a Duke now, and a year before I joined Duke, <clears throat> there was a scandal that lots of the MBAs were kind of sharing the exams. Mm. And that year I was teaching at MIT, and there was a story in, you know, the Washington Post or the, the Wall Street Journal, I can't remember, about the, the Duke, the MBAs cheating. And I asked the MIT students, what do they think about that? And they basically said, why are they punishing them? We do it all the time. <laughs> but... But but you created a tremendously large punishment. They expelled people. They held people wow. a year wow. back. Um, and, you know, while we can wonder, much like the Yahoo CEO, if this was appropriate punishment for the people, do, at the time did they realize the severity of what they were doing, we can also say, if you don't do that, how you, do you stop the slippery slope? So I think Duke, at that point in time, created an incredibly strong standard for what is acceptable and not acceptable. And everybody knows about it and everybody thinks about it now. I think in the same way Yahoo has just created a very strong standard. Whether it was the right punishment yeah. for the particular individuals, that I think is a very, very tough question. Because my guess, for example, at the, at the Duke case, my guess is that most people um, were sharing and working together like they were working together in all kinds of other cases. Uh -huh, and uh -huh. did they not know that the rules for exams are slightly different from the rules for just a joint project? Yes, they know, but did they think about it very carefully and so on? No, but now with this new very, very heavy punishment, I think there's a new realization of where the lines are, and without it, it would have been just very hard to maintain. Interesting, interesting. Um, let me give you another, another question, as always here in Office Hours, ripped from the headline. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court recently uh, assessed legislation called the Stolen Valor Act. I love the name of that. Best name piece of legislation I've heard. The Stolen Valor Act. And this, this law made it a federal crime to lie about having won military medals. So if I go out and say, it would make a crime if I went on this program and said, you know, uh, back in uh, the Iraq War, I won a bronze star. Um, and the Supreme Court said, you know what? That law is unconstitutional. It violates the First Amendment. Uh, you've got essentially a constitutional right to lie. Um, mm -hmm. So if, if you're, you're now a, a congressman, Ariely, so what do you do now? Uh, how, how do you, uh, you know, we, it, it, we have a free society here where people can say stuff, and if it doesn't harm anybody, if I say I, w I, um, I won the Bronze Star, therefore you should give me some aid or some federal benefits, or if I say, I won the Bronze Star, and therefore you should hire me to be a consultant to the Army. That's basically fraud, and people are being hurt. But if I just go around saying to this group of people on this program, I won the Bronze Star, no one yeah. is hurt, and I have a, I have a right to lie. Um, or, or maybe I, you're going on a date and you're exaggerating sure. some, some things. Um, so, so first of all, I think that um, you know, it's really sad that people uh, tell, tell yeah. these lies, right? I don't want to uh, say anything different. 
Um, but I think it's also sad to think that this legislation is going to change anything. Right. First of all, the people who are telling these lies will have to know right. that there's a punishment for that, right. and they right. have to think about it carefully. And if you think right. about the process of lying as being step by step and all about yeah. rationalization, yeah. Uh, then you could say uh, that this is not going to, uh, to change anything. And this, by the way, I think is very common. I think if you think about how we deal with bankers, ha we have big punishment for them in case they misbehave. But if they don't think about the big punishment, that's not going to do anything. Right. On the other hand, I think that this is unlike the Yahoo story, because in the Yahoo story, by being very strict about it, they're changing the, the culture internally about what is acceptable and not acceptable. They're changing everybody around them is involved in right. that. People who lie about uh, bronze stars, there's not like a society for bronze star liars who basically say, okay, now let's, <laughs> let's stop doing it. Yeah. it it's, a, it's a legislation that is outside of the culture, and because of that, it's, I don't think it's going to do anything. It's right. just going to be sad. Um, because okay. people are going yeah. to get into it, and then they're going to go to jail uh, as a consequence of it. What, what, about, uh, what about things like, um, let's go back to Congress for a moment. I mean, you go to testify before Congress, um, and, and you swear an oath. Um, and yet people lie even after swearing an oath. How do we explain that? Is that, is that more of the cost-benefit analysis, or do they have – are there rationalizations for that as well, even though you're think, affirming before people that you're going to about to tell the truth? Yeah, so I think, I think both of those things happened. Uh, and, you know, I've talked to – in my discussions with the – Lots of cheaters. I also talk to lots of lawyers, mm -hmm. and some some of what's, the white collar. What's the Venn diagram? What, what does the Venn diagram look like? <laughs> yeah, but some of the white collar crime lawyers that I talk to basically said that their job is to say, given the evidence, what is a plausible story I can tell that my client has actually not committed a crime, mm. <clears throat> and. One of them told me that it's incredibly easy after a while and after many hours of discussion to convince uh, the people that have, this is actually the real story, mm -hmm. right? We have mm -hmm. lots of data about how faulty memory is and how faulty sure. uh, <clears throat> how recollection is of what happened and our motivation and so on. And you can actually tell yourself a story really quite easily. And, you know, that's again, when we look at crimes or when we look at misbehavior, we can say to ourselves, we could have never taken all of these 100 steps. But the person who did it, most likely did not think about all the 100 steps. They probably no. thought about just one step. And yep. if you think about it like this, you could say, can I see myself doing that? And going back to resumes, um, sometimes I have sessions with the students about what troubles them in terms of ethical dilemmas on campus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And resumes is one of those areas where it's very, very unclear what the lines are. Mm. Uh, you took two semesters of French. Are you fluent? Mm. You took one semester of stats. Do, do you know statistics? Mm. Um, you worked in a library stacking books. What's your job description? How do you write that out? Independently mm. controlling uh, important <laughs> right. university resources. I mean, yeah, there's yeah. lots of things <clears throat> you can do. And then once you do it a little bit, then what if everybody else is doing it? Are you basically... Um, not, fair, uh, not, not giving yourself the right chance by being behind mm, other mm -hmm, people. Mm, so, mm -hmm. so the gray zones, I think the gray zones we have in society these days are incredibly wide. And, you know, we, we, we give people very broad gray zones because we, we understand 
the room for creativity and we understand the room for flexibility and we want people not to be too constrained, on the other hand, we have to realize that there's a cost. Um, and if you give people very flexible rules about, you know, expense accounts, sure, they would be able to tell you what's needed for what particular event is, but mm -hmm. there's also a good reason to expect that they will interpret things in a way that is good for them in the short term sure. and after the fact might not be good for them even in the long term. Uh, right, and that goes, once again, back to the short-term, long-term. Let me ask you, we're almost out of time. Let me ask you a, a question here. So let's say, this is, this is something that, that, that um, uh, we were contending with here in the pink family where there is, where um, two mo a mom, a dad, and three kids, and our middle kid, who was a middle schooler, came back one day and said, and, and I discovered that on this one particular exercise in class, it was sort of a, there was something where people could get extra credit points. She said she she, she and her friend discovered that basically everybody in the class was cheating. Um, mm -hmm. And she she came back and said every and I, I don't want to tell you what 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 she what she did. She she and her friend were not cheaters. Um, and she came back and told us about the situation. As a parent, what do you tell a kid in that kind of situation? When every she, everybody is everybody is cheating, do you say? Uh, thou shalt uh, read, read the ninth commandment, young lady, or do you say, well, if everybody's cheating, maybe it's okay. What, what, what advice do you get for parents in that kind of situation? No, so I, I think this is a, this is a case where uh, your daughter basically got the, the raw end of the stick from school because she was honest. Mm -hmm. And what you need to do is, and I, I think if I remember correctly, you, you are interested in rewards. Uh, yes. But... <laughs> Um, I think what you need to do is you need to create a reward that uh, overcomes the reward from school. Mm. You know, uh, the moment cheating becomes common in school, and the yeah. moment you as a parent just look at the grades, uh, you uh, are going to re basically create a situation in which you reward dishonestly, sure. dishonest behavior. So what you need to do is you need to say, uh, I don't care about what grade you get. Uh -huh. right? what, what matters here is the effort that you put into it and how much you, you learned from it. The, the grade as an outcome is not the important thing, and I'm going to reward you for two things. I'm going to reward you for your effort, and I'm also going to reward you for your honesty. Uh -huh. Because, okay. you know, uh even though the world – remember, the world is giving us lots of short-term rewards for being mm. dishonest, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's not, it's not always long-term rewards. Right, so you can do better for a little bit, but then if you get used to it and you get caught, you can get expelled from school. There, there's still this tremendous punishment <clears throat> that people could could get, um, that is that is incredibly bad, and there's still tremendous damage that people can create. Mm. The question is, how do you do it early? I'll yeah. tell you one other thing: is that there's a, another important thing is to ask the question of what is the age by which people develop a moral fiber. Mm. And what is the age in which it's kind of too late? Mm. And, you know, there, there are debates about this, but most of the what's called critical age in human development is kind of by the age of 12, right, mm. in many areas of life. So, so I think that it's incredibly important to create a sense of morality that is actually quite clear and strict in an early age, and that would basically help people throughout their lives moving forward. And that will uh, make it less likely that the rationalization engines will kick into gear, that, defenses, that, that their defenses will remain sturdy? 
That's right. It, it would basically mean that they would look at what they're supposed to do in a much more strict way with a much less capacity or interest in rationalizing it. Interesting. Interesting. That's, that's interesting advice. I mean, also, I mean, it's very interesting advice, but also arguably would call, depending on one's point of view, would call for um, exposure to religion and religious practice and ritual that reinforces these things, arguably, depending on one's belief. But on, on that yeah. uncontroversial, on that, that uncontroversial note, um, saturating our children in religious belief, let's, um, let's, let's wrap up for here. We've been talking to Dan Ariely, author, New York Times bestselling author of Predictably Irrational, The Upside of Irrationality, and the great and spanky new book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. I encourage you listeners to pick up this book. It is fodder for just an amazing array of conversations with your friends. Uh, and, and families. It really makes you look at your own behavior and the behavior of other people in a in a new light. Um, so, uh, Dan, thanks for being with us. Uh, this program will be available for download for free in a couple of days at danpink.com. Uh, to learn more about our, our guests, go to uh, danarielli.com, D-A-N-A-R-I-E-L-Y.com, danarielli.com, or follow him at, at Dan. Uh, Arielli. Again, the book is The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. Uh, Office Hours is going to be taking a break for a couple of months, so you can enjoy the summer and I can finish a new book. But join us in the fall when we'll have a truly amazing lineup of guests to entertain and educate. Wait, you. wait. What do you mean, truly amazing? What was this? Uh, this was this was uh, <laughs> astoundingly amazing. This was um, falsely no. This was, we've had we have had an embarrassment of riches here, and it's great to uh, end the first season here with uh, with Dan Ariely. But we'll have equally amazing. That's what I said. It must be a typo in my script here. It says equally amazing. Some equally amazing guests um, who will educate and entertain you, not nearly to the level that Dan Ariely has over the last hour, but close. Um, Very good. Until then, for. Um, for uh, producer Joseph Hinson in Lynchburg and director Jessica Lerner here at World Headquarters, I'm Daniel Pink. If you've missed, this is Office Hours. If you've missed an episode, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, but you can make amends by going to iTunes and listening to all our episodes there. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you in the fall. We'll, we'll see you and hear you and talk to you in the fall. 